Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter and I were reminiscing about a trip we took a few years ago. I was out shopping and I had two very interesting encounters which made us chuckle. In fact, I spoke about it on the radio at that time. And I want to share it with you now. I want to describe to you two interactions I had recently while shopping. Now, my husband nor I are big shoppers. However, we were out of town a few weeks ago and we were taking a stroll along a cute little outdoor shopping mall. Anyway, I innocently wandered into a clothing store and found a very nice blouse that I decided to purchase. As I was speaking to the saleswoman, who I think was also the owner of the store, I noticed in the corner of the store the display of fur items, lots of them. I mean, the entire back corner room seemed to be the fur room. This caught me by surprise, since I just really didn't expect to see the selling of fur in this low-key, quaint, and casual outdoor shopping area. But anyway, instinctively and naturally for me, I could not help commenting to the saleswoman about it. And I said something like, are you really selling fur here? And I would guess with a somewhat disgusted look on my face. Anyway, as I realized that I was on the verge of buying a blouse from the fur woman, a brief discussion ensued about the morality of fur. And at one point, as she was trying to convince me that I shouldn't be bothered by the fur display, she looked down at my shoes and said, well, it's no different than wearing suede like your shoes. And I replied that I basically agreed with her logic, but of course I was not persuaded by her analogy because my shoes were not made of suede or leather, or any animal product for that matter. I do not buy animal products. So I said something like, Ha! These shoes are not suede. These are man-made. And I politely handed her the blouse as I proudly made my way out of her store in my blue bow suede shoes. Okay, so I will tell you, this encounter made me wonder, where did the saleswoman get this technique from? The technique of pointing at the shoes in order to sell her fur. Did she come up with it herself, or could it have come from a fur industry training manual? Remember, this is the same industry that touts fur as a green product and claims fur can be cruelty-free. Both, of course, you know are so untrue. Anyway, I did a little research to see if I could classify the type of argument used by the saleswoman on me. This is what I like to do on my spare time, think about silly arguments from silly people. Anyway, I framed it like this. If you wear leather shoes and are willing to permit animals to be created, suffer abusive lives, and then be slaughtered so you can have their skin for shoes, then you should have no problem using the product of fur obtained from different animals as clothing to keep you warm. That's just being internally consistent, which we all should be, right? Now, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination knowledgeable about fallacies of logic and reasoning, but it was instructive to read about this on Wikipedia, where there's a good entry including lists of the various types of formal and informal fallacies, syllogistic fallacies, faulty generalizations, and red herring fallacies. I think the closest one to my saleswoman's argument, although maybe not perfect, was that it was a false analogy. A false analogy, which I learned, consists of an error in the substance of an argument, that is to say the content of the analogy itself, 
and not an error in the logical structure of the argument. Now, as I stated before, the saleswoman's argument in favor of fur was never going to work on me because I don't buy products made from animals. But if she had tried this line on one of her more normal, unsuspecting customers, one who does not wear fur but does buy and wear leather, then it might serve to break down the customer's previously held resistance to fur. But in reality, I think this argument fails because people's behaviors and beliefs are just too complex to be restrained by and encapsulated by a little rule of thinking, like we have to be consistent all the time. First, we all hold contradictory notions in our minds simultaneously. None of us is completely consistent in our own values. We may try to be, but we're not. And our behaviors and beliefs don't always match up. It's just part of being human. Second, her argument ignores the essential elements of time and emotional growth and exploration. People grow and evolve and learn as they get older. My personal evolution from dog and cat lover to vegetarian and vegan and animal rights advocate was a journey. And a journey takes time. So your child comes home from college and asks you to give up your mink fur coat, and you do. It's a step in the right, humane direction. Then what's next? Maybe stop eating veal or stop buying alligator belts. That's good. Or maybe it finally makes sense to you to adopt a pet instead of buying one from a breeder, and you experience the joy and good feeling that comes from adopting and saving a life. And further, you donate to or volunteer at a local shelter. We evolve and we grow, hopefully as kinder human beings. So tell the fur saleswoman the next time you meet her, no thanks, going back to fur is not part of my compassionate journey. Now, as fascinating as that encounter with the crafty saleswoman was, after I left her place just a few doors down, I found myself in a shoe store. I needed some sandals. And by the way, there are many places, especially on the Internet, where you can find really nice footwear that are... Um, 100% synthetic, but I personally have very hard to fit feet, and it's not easy for me to buy shoes online. So when I found this pretty comfortably looking sandal in this store, I was hopeful, and I asked the salesperson, are these leather? To which she replied, yes, of course they're leather. Like that was a stupid question and with implication that being made of leather was a positive feature, one that would make it more likely that I would purchase the sandals. And, of course, little does she know I'm looking for just the opposite. So she gave me a puzzled look when I told her, oh, too bad, they're made of leather, but thanks anyway. So although I was not successful in buying myself any clothing that day, I did successfully annoy some people, but that's okay. And shop owners, be aware. And everyone, actually, the trend toward cruelty-free products is on the rise. Consumers are demanding them more and more. And for these people, something being made out of genuine leather or real suede is, believe it or not, a turnoff. Increasing number of people are shopping kindly. And this was very evident. I'll tell you, in Santa Monica last weekend when my husband and I saw signs everywhere for vegan food and synthetic products. And truly, I think that cruelty-free living is on the verge of becoming the next mainstream consumer 
trend. Just like the, the green movement has grown in the past few years, this desire to avoid using animal products is no longer confined to the granola crowd. People are now considering the terrible suffering of animals in the making of some products, and they don't want to support that in any way. And think about it. There's nothing made with animal products that humans actually need, right? Nothing. So where, whether it's choosing clothes or grocery shopping or buying a gift, with no sacrifice to you and a little knowledge, you can easily become a cruelty-free and compassionate shopper. Your Animals Today Minute for today is about plastic straws and the oceans. Recently, environmental and animal welfare groups have begun asking people to stop using plastic straws because many of them end up in the oceans where they harm aquatic animals. Each year, an estimated 4.8 to 12.7 million metric tons of plastic waste enters the oceans. But why the recent interest in drinking straws, which are a relatively small part of the plastic waste? Well, a video showing the removal of a straw embedded in the nasal passage of a rescued sea turtle definitely raised awareness about the direct effects of plastic waste on aquatic animals. This has been viewed more than 17 million times on YouTube, and a follow-up video showing the removal of a plastic fork from a leatherback turtle's nose has almost 6 million views. Overall, the main types of marine debris are plastics, lost and discarded fishing gear like lines and ghost nets, food packaging, metal objects, medical waste, and cigarette filters. 20% of the total is from fishing gear lost at sea or by illegal dumping. Along coastal regions, small pieces of discarded trash wash into storm drains, which lead to the oceans. Beachgoers and picnickers who litter contribute to ocean pollution and poorly managed municipal dumps and factories are also culprits. Trash that finds its way into rivers and streams likewise can end up as ocean debris. Finally, there is the impact of weather events like hurricanes, which can blow huge amounts of garbage into waterways and oceans. Marine animals are harmed by ingestion and by entanglement. Discarded nets and traps can continue to kill marine life by suffocation and starvation long after they are lost. Waterfowl, fish, and sea mammals ingest plastics of all varieties, filling their stomachs with trash and robbing them of vital calories. Now, back to the burden of straws. A statistic you may read is that each day in the U.S., people discard 500 million straws or 180 billion per year. Now, even though this figure has been questioned as coming from a single possibly biased source, one thing is certain. At beach cleanups, plastic straws are among the top 10 items removed. So it sure seems reasonable to be concerned about plastic straws as oceanic waste. So whether to ditch plastic straws will be a decision for each of us to make. That is, unless you are in the coastal cities of Manhattan Beach or San Luis Obispo, California, where disposable plastics, such as food containers and straws, are prohibited. And recently, a bill introduced in California would assess hefty fines and even jail time to restaurant wait staff who supply plastic straws to customers without specifically being asked. Let's see where this goes, but here in California, anything's possible.
Some restaurants have already stopped offering straws anyway, or are using compostable ones. And of course, there are voluntary steps each of us can take to reduce our plastic footprint, like reducing the use of other single-use plastics like bags, cups, and water bottles. There are so many durable, practical, and stylish alternatives now available, and there are even stainless steel straws. So, help save the oceans and their creatures, and make single-use convenience plastics a thing of the past. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. We're going to talk about dog training, and we've had experience in dog trainers, haven't we? Yes, a, a few too many, if you ask me. That's right. In the last several years, where we had three different dog trainers trying to give us some tips on, on training one of our dogs. And um, This dog's pretty rambunctious, likes to pull on the leash a lot, would like to chase cars if she could. Okay. So uh, it's reasonable to ask for help. And they all have different methods, right? And I mean, widely different. One believed the dogs shouldn't be on the same level with us, with the humans, so didn't believe the dogs should be sleeping in our bed or on or lying on the couch with us. That's right. And another suggested we fill a can with pennies and use that whenever the dog didn't do something we wanted her to do. That's right. And even another suggested medication like Prozac. Remember that one? I know. I'm not giving up my Prozac. <laughs> so do you ever wonder what the best methods of dog training are? I mean, personally, I do find this whole field confusing and, and unscientific. For sure. And there's so many books and so many different opinions as to the best way to train your dog. And so let's let's talk to an expert about this who is actually studying this stuff, okay? I now want to welcome Dr. Clive Wynn, researcher and animal behavior psychologist working at the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Welcome to the program, Clive. Thank you so much, Laurie. Pleasure well, to be with you. Thank you. Clive, talk about the confusion and misconceptions about dog training, because I know you study that. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I worry that, uh, that, that that there's broadening confusion in the dog training community about ultimately what's the right and the wrong thing to do. And I think that part of this has grown because the single most popular dog trainer in the country, perhaps in the world, clearly has no scientific education of any kind and has promulgated a view uh, based around a, a garbled understanding of the concept of dominance. And a lot of better educated trainers have reacted against that in a way which I fear is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're referring yeah. to Caesar Malone, correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. Okay. And so I, personally, I can't see any, anything wrong with the concept of dominance. I mean, if you pick up a standard introductory textbook in animal behavior, there'll be a chapter or at least a section on the concept of dominance. Dominance is just the ability of one animal to control another animal's um, access to important resources. So if, if you're in a position where you control another individual's access to food, to shelter, uh, possibly to to sexual partners, then you are in a relationship of dominance to that other individual. So the so the mistake doesn't lie in talking about dominance. I think it's not an unreasonable thing to discuss in the context of our lives with dogs. The mistake lies in how that concept is interpreted. And I fear that Cesar Milan interprets the concept of dominance the way that a layperson might think of that when they're thinking of two 
members of opposing gangs or of the same gang facing off in some violent confrontation, I like to say that if you're the one with the opposable thumb who can open the kibble bag or can open the can of uh, wet dog food, then you are, by definition, in a position of dominance over your dog. Mm -hmm. It has no further implications. You don't gain anything by an addition to being the one who provides the food, also giving your dog a small kick or a big kick from time to time. That's just nonsensical. So I worry that... uh, that we're beginning to get only more confused about basic concepts like dominance. And and then I also worry that people don't deeply understand the different concepts of uh, reinforcement and punishment. Punishment is anything, any, con- any um, consequence that you might provide that reduces the likelihood that a behavior will be repeated. And so to some degree, you can never get away from punishment. If there are behaviors and you, and you want them to reduce in frequency, the things you do are technically punishers. So a timeout is a form of punishment. But again, that doesn't mean to say that, that there's any advantage or any purpose in beating your dog or in any other way being cruel to your animal. And on the flip side, you know, positive reinforcement is not without ethical uh, issues. So uh, aside from any questions about how effective different ways of training dogs are, if you're using positive reinforcement, that means you're using high-energy, high-calorie treats. And with so many animals overweight today, we need to think about the ethical consequences of positive reinforcement as well as of punishment and negative reinforcement. Clive, we receive probably two or three dozen books about training every year to review and I'm paging through them and Lori's looking at and that's it's a collection of ideas almost thrown together almost without a concept behind them it's it, the authors seem confused well I I must confess I do not read training books I I, I sit outside of that what I notice, so what I read is I, I keep abreast of the scientific literature. Okay. And what stuns me, I mean, I'm, I couldn't train my dog to eat her own dinner. So I, I have plenty of respect for people who actually go in and actually try and be practical and helpful for the millions of dogs and their owners that need help. And I respect that. What I see is that people like me, scientists with an interest in dog behavior, are failing the trainer community. We are the ones who should be providing leadership. The new ideas should be coming from us. So what I see when I keep abreast of the scientific literature is that we're not even contributing to the conversation. So, for example, on the on the more positive side, um, I'm a tremendous fan of Karen Pryor's. I love her books. I think she works with great sincerity. And I think the clicker training is one of the better ideas out there. So, so how many excuse me, what, what, is, what is that? What is clicker training? So clicker training is the use of what we technically call a secondary reinforcer. That's to say something that in itself has no rewarding uh, quality to it as an addition to providing an animal with a reward. So you could uh, train a dog to do something by giving it a small treat every time it does so. But what Karen Pryor and others who advocate for clicker training, what they are saying is that, first of all, you make the sound of the clicker valuable to a dog by pairing it with food. So several times you simply go click, food, click, food, and so on, until the dog comes to recognize that the clicker sound means that food is on its way. And this seems like 
an intelligent approach to take to dog training. So, my, so the question then is, what have we as behavioral scientists contributed to understanding these processes and testing whether the clicker really does work? It seems like it ought to. What do we know as to how well it does work? And the answer is, I don't think there's a single paper in the scientific literature on clicker training with dogs. I mean, it's possible I haven't been keeping up conscientiously. Maybe there are now one or two papers. But a scientific literature and a scientific consensus takes many scientists at different places working in different ways and publishing their results. That's the only way that we have scientific knowledge. And we're just not doing that. We're simply completely failing to do that. We are speaking with Dr. Clive Wynn. More with Dr. Wynn after the break. This is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. We're speaking with psychologist Clive Wynn. Now, Clive, you also have an interest in the welfare of dogs in shelters. Yes, we've, we've done a lot of work, particularly with my sometimes student and now uh, colleague and collaborator, Sasha Protopopova. We've done a lot of work looking at the welfare of dogs in shelters. We did a series of studies trying to understand what it is when people come to the shelter and they're looking for a dog. What is it that they're looking for? People in the past did studies asking people what they were looking for. Sasha and I started from the presumption that people might not really know what they're looking for. They might be influenced by things that they don't even consciously notice. And so we made thousands of video recordings of dogs reacting to visitors in shelters, and we coded every single thing that each of those dogs did And then we looked to see which dogs got adopted and which dogs did not. And in that way, we were able to uncover patterns in the dog's behavior that influenced people, even though nobody had ever mentioned this when they'd been asked what they were looking for. So, for example, one of the things that Sasha found was that if the dog licks, that is a major turnoff for the visitors. If the dog licks itself, that is unattractive to visitors, and if the dog licks any part of its kennel while a visitor is watching, that's almost like a death sentence for that dog. It is a very negative thing. Now, nobody had ever, when people had been questioned about what they were looking for, nobody ever said, I really do not want to have a dog that's going to lick itself. It just never came up. So, um, So I think that was very valuable. Uh, Sasha also developed interventions, ways of changing the dog's behavior short of employing a professional dog trainer. It's kind of in a sense trivial to say that if we know what we want the dogs to do, we could employ a professional to get the dogs to that place, to be doing the attractive things and not doing the unattractive things. 
But we started from the presumption that shelters are very short on resources, and we developed ways of improving the dog's behavior through methods that uh, can be employed just by volunteers that don't require professional training. The question of getting dogs out of shelters, which is ultimately the only good outcome, is to get free and home in a good home. We've also done some studies, not yet I fear entirely successful, trying to understand why people return dogs. Some shelters recognize that quite large proportions of the dogs they adopt out are getting returned to their own shelter or another shelter within a few weeks. And we've been trying to understand that, and we've been looking at interventions that might reduce the rate of returns. I'm afraid we haven't found the magic bullet for that yet, but I think it's a valuable enterprise, and we'll keep pushing away at that. We also know that shelters are very stressful for dogs. Several studies have shown that dogs in shelters are highly stressed, and we know that that produces unattractive behaviors. What we do not know, what nobody knows, is well, what is it exactly about being in the shelter that is stressful? Because it's possible that if we knew that, we might be able to give shelters advice that might not be expensive for them to implement that would reduce the stress levels of dogs. We haven't started that yet. We don't have the resources to do that, but I would love to do that if I could find a partner who was willing to help us with the funding of that. And the final thing that I also want to develop Uh, At the moment, a lot of shelters use temperament tests. They use them to identify which dogs are safe to be adopted into homes. They don't want to be liable for allowing dogs to be adopted that end up doing harm to people in homes. And some more ambitious shelters try and identify the personality of the dog and match it to the personality of the potential adopter. And and some use them to determine if a dog should be euthanized. Right, absolutely. So, so these temp- uh, these are high stakes temperament tests. This isn't like a little personality test you might do on the back pages of a magazine just for your amusement. In some cases, shelters are using temperament tests, exactly as you said, to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. And yet, the validity of those tests is is, well, I don't want to say they're not valid. We don't know their validity. Their right. validity is largely untested. And what I, there are two things I would like to do. The first is I would like to develop a temperament test from the ground up. All the temperament tests that exist at present, it's not that they're foolish or misguided, but they were driven by people's intuitions about what is important and what is not important. That's how psychologists work in developing new intelligence tests, new tests to identify like ADHD or any other psychological problem that a human being might have. There are well-established methods for doing that. What I would like to do is to take those methods and apply them to dogs in the shelter. One possibility is precisely because the shelter is a very abnormal environment or an environment that's radically different from the home environment, it's possible that nothing you could ask a dog in a shelter would tell you how that dog would behave when he gets home. And if that's the case, we should all stop wasting our time giving these uh, temperament tests that are very widely administered today. But on the other hand, we we may come up with a good test as short and sweet as possible, and it might be able to predict whether the dog will be safe in our home, and uh, it may be possible to use the test in conjunction with some questions given to a potential adopter to make sure that an adopter goes home with a dog that fits well into their lifestyle. Dr. Clive Wynn, animal behavior psychologist, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. 
Hey, it's Peter here, and you're listening to Animals Today. I want to remind you to visit the website, animalstodayradio.com. You'll be able to listen to all our previous shows for many years now, animalstodayradio.com. And uh, tell us what you think. Today, I want to welcome back veterinary neurologist, Dr. Stephen Hansen. Today's topic is seizures in our companion animals. Dr. Hansen, how common are seizures in dogs and cats? I don't have any uh, statistic on that, but it's certainly something that we see a lot of. And I I think that most general veterinarians probably see a seizure case once a week. So um, it's not a very common condition, but it's certainly not uncommon. And what causes seizures? Seizures can be caused by anything that affects the brain, which can be um, some sort of chemical imbalance in the body, like say due to liver disease, it can be from a toxin. Uh, Seizures can occur from an infection in the brain or a tumor or a stroke. So a wide variety of things can cause seizures. It's one of the most common neurological symptoms. But The condition that we see most often is what's called idiopathic epilepsy, which is a genetic condition where a dog has recurring seizures um, because of an electrical malfunction in their brain. In human medicine, we often would do an electroencephalograph or EEG to decide if epilepsy is a likely cause of the seizure. Do you do EEGs on animals? EEGs are done, but there are a couple of challenges that we have with dogs that um, are a little bit unique. First of all, dogs have heads that are much, much thicker than a person's head. So they sometimes have a couple of inches of muscle and then a very thick skull. So an EEG really just gives us a reflection of what's happening on the very surface of the brain. The other limitation is that oftentimes we can only tell if a seizure is going on if we're doing the EEG during the seizure. So sometimes with people, they'll put on the array of electrodes on the scalp and then the person will sit in a room for a while until they actually have a seizure, which could take a day. So with dogs, we can't do that because they wouldn't tolerate all the electrodes. There are some studies now being done with setups like that, that that can be worn for some period of time, but that's still very much in its infancy. How do individuals recognize if their dog or cat is having a seizure? Most of the time, it's uh, pretty clear because generally what they'll do is fall to their side and and convulse. They don't respond if their name is called. Uh, Sometimes they clench their jaw and hypersalivate. Uh, There are other, and that's something called a generalized seizure. There are other seizures that are less obvious. Um, in people, sometimes kids especially will have something called absence seizures where they stare off briefly. We don't know if dogs get that or not. I think that would be very difficult to, to determine. But seizures can manifest as just a twitching of the face or twitching on one side of the body. But usually it's pretty clear that something, um, something's awry. And this is an emergency, correct? If a seizure happens for the first time, it should definitely be dealt with as an emergency because it's hard to know what's going to happen next. It could progress into um, a very prolonged seizure state called status epilepticus, which can actually damage the brain. With a dog with 
an established seizure, seizure history. Say they have idiopathic epilepsy and they have a 30-second seizure every few months. That's something that can just be written out at home. So the owner can kind of, um, you know, help the dog to avoid self-trauma during the seizure and just let it uh, subside. And but generally, if yeah. it's a first-time seizure, a dog should be taken to a veterinarian immediately. And how are they treated? Seizures are treated with anticonvulsant medication. So there are a variety of different drugs that we use. Uh, some are just used in the short term to actually stop a seizure, and then some are used for maintenance therapy. Generally, once a dog has idiopathic epilepsy, they'll have seizures their whole life. So usually long-term medication is required. And that that creates the challenge of trying to avoid drug side effects with long-term use. So we're always trying to derive safer medications and, and regimens for giving these medications long-term. Are special diets or lifestyle modifications helpful? In some cases, if seizures are occurring due to some sort of internal organ disorder, then uh, certain diets are helpful. With epilepsy, there's no real established diet that makes a difference. There's certainly a lot of anecdotes, and you know some people feel that certain diets um, are likely to help control seizures, but generally speaking, no. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that if a dog has a seizure disorder and they get sick for some other reason, it can make them more likely to have a seizure. So if a dog has epilepsy and, say, inflammatory bowel disease, they may need a special diet for their inflammatory bowel disease, which would also indirectly help control their seizures. Right, right. Now, do other animals get seizures, like rabbits or turtles, snakes, horses? Yeah, actually, um, just about any animal can have seizures. I, I once treated a sea lion that had seizures. Oh. So, um, any, anything with a brain can have a seizure. Veterinary neurologist Dr. Stephen Hansen, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I heard a song that I haven't heard in years, mm-hmm. and I can't get it out of my head. Okay, that could be good or bad. And why are we talking about this? Because it has an animal in the title. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So I want you to guess it. Okay. Foxy Lady. <laughs> the first word yes. of the title of the song is rock. Rock. Lobster. Right. Okay. <laughs> By whom? The B-52s. Exactly. When's the last time you heard that song? Yesterday. Really? I like the B-52s. I've got one of their CDs, maybe two. I saw the B-52s not long ago at the Hollywood Bowl. Without uh, me. Yeah. It was really good. Fred still got his cowbell. He doesn't move as much as he used to, but it was really fun. Is he heavy or just old or both? Well, we're all getting older. He looks pretty darn good, I have to say. Yeah. Well, I have some of the best songs ever with an animal in the song title. So you're going to guess. I hope it's from my era. It is. Okay, good. So you're going to guess the name of the song title and who sang it. Mm. Okay, ready? Shoot. 
The name of the song is a sleek fish with an elongated body, mm. a mouth full of sharp teeth, and they resemble underwater torpedoes. Oh, shark, shark, porpoise, sharp teeth. Okay, let me know. Barracuda. Oh, Barracuda. By? By heart. Good. Okay, next. Large prehistoric looking reptile that are found throughout the world's hottest tropical regions. Mm. Large. Large. Oh, alligator. Crocodile rock. Ah, very good. Crocodile rock. Bye. Good, good. Okay. Okay. This animal is a wild carnivorous mammal of the dog family living and hunting in packs. First get the animal. Mm. Yeah. Then you can get the song title. Wolf. Right. Wolf. Hungry like the wolf. Yes. Good. Okay, Duran Duran. Very okay. good. All You're right. good at this. Just stay in this zone. Like n- nothing more recent than 1995. It's and not. Okay. They're not. Okay. The males of this species may learn 200 songs in his lifetime. In addition to bird songs, these animals have been heard to mimic frogs, insects, and even non-animal noises such as car alarms. Oh. Oh, let's see. Um, they are robins? No. That's um, a good guess. No. Um, a parrot. No. Um, toucan. Macaw. Uh, uh, I tell you where it starts with? Yeah. M. That doesn't help okay. me. Sorry. <laughs> M. Is it a bird? Did you yes. say bird? It's a bird. It has bird in its name. Oh, mockingbird. Good. Oh, Oh, boy. I know that uh, James Taylor yes. and Carly Simon. Good. Were, did they write it? Yes. I don't, oh, wow. Good. Wow. That was a good one. The weight of this bird is less than a penny. <laughs> that's a hummingbird? Yes. And that's a song? Yep. Oh, I don't know anything about that song. Seals and Cross. Oh. Oh, yeah. Remember now? Mm-hmm. The word pinniped means fin or flipper-footed and refers to the marine mammals that have front and rear flippers. This group includes seals, sea lions, and... Seals, uh, sea lions, and... Walruses. Oh, yeah. I am the walrus. Very good. Okay. By? By the Beatles. Is that the Beatles or Paul McCartney or John Lennon or do you know? You know what? I just assumed it was the Beatles. Mm. Let's ask Yoko. But don't ask her to sing it. No. There are about 59 different species of this bird throughout the world. Large birds of prey and mm-hmm. excellent vision. Yes. Fly like an eagle. Very good. By? By Steve Miller. Very good. Yeah. That's right in the sweet spot of my, uh, of my song knowledge. Scientific name of this animal is Procyon loader. Mm. Means washer dog. Washer. Although it is a closer relative to the bear family. Oh, is that a, like a beaver or a... Close. Or an otter? No, raccoon. A, uh, a raccoon? Yes. Oh, Rocky Raccoon. Very good. Bye. <laughs> Same thing. Those beetle people. Okay, <laughs> the beetle people. <laughs> Large oceanic bird starts with the letter A. Albatross. Very good. Bye. Ooh, I don't know that song, Albatross. Oh, that's... I'd have no, no idea. Fluid Mac. Okay. 
1962, the controversial book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson was published, right? I remember that. It documented the adverse effects on the environment of the indiscriminate use of pesticides. Yep. She noted threats to some birds like eagles and other raptors, but she warned that one of the most common American birds, this bird, was on the verge of extinction, and hence the title, since these birds would be silent and wouldn't be singing. What bird is this? Bird that sings a lot, like Rob Robin. Yeah. Uh, she, I didn't know she talked about robins. That was the name of you know her book, Silent Spring, uh-huh. indicating that uh, the pesticide would kill all the robins and oh. spring would be silent. Oh, okay. Now it makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I think I, I think I read that too. Oh, Rock and Robin. Bye. Okay. Bye. I'm gonna say the Jackson Five. Very good. Okay. A small, like two to four inches, ground-dwelling member of the squirrel family known for their burrowing habits and love of nuts. Gopher? Um, are you a... It's a good guess. Um... <laughs> High voices. Oh, chipmunk yeah <laughs> oh that okay. that was a good clue okay chipmunk by the oh that's the name of the song chipmunk yeah mm. the chipmunk song by the chipmunks okay <laughs> is it like is that like a a theme song to their cartoon or something like that or probably these animals are semi-aquatic rodents named for their musky smell and rat-like appearance. They're known mostly for their destructive burrowing in ponds, streams, and dams. Okay, is musky smell a hint? Not muskrat. Yes. Oh, muskrat love. Very good, by. Yes, by uh, Captain and Tennille. Yep. Yeah, that was a funny duo right there. Was that like a one-hit wonder? No, they had it, they had their, they had a run of a, those, those sappy, funny little 70s songs. Yeah. These animals have a head called mantle mm-hmm. surrounded with eight arms called tentacles. Eight. Well, eight is octopus. Very good. And? Octopus. Octopus's garden. Yep. By? Those lads from Liverpool. Very good. Okay. These animals are primarily exploited and abused as farm animals, mainly for their wool and meat, and to some extent, their byproducts like cheese and milk. Oh, uh, sheep? Yep. Sheep. Sheep. There's a sheep from Pink Floyd, isn't there? Yep. Okay. You got it. Yep. I like that one. What animal does the president pardon every year the most ridiculous White House tradition? <laughs> the turkey. There's a turkey song. Yeah, there's a turkey song. Turkey. Um, I can give you another hint. Okay. When you abruptly and completely stop taking a drug you're addicted to. Oh, you go cold turkey. They yes, bye. Cold turkey. I don't remember that one. I know. John Lennon. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Peter, unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you a B minus for today's quiz. But there'll be another one soon. So until then, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.